expectations. They are, they are powerful things. Sometimes they are really comforting when we know, it's really comforting to know what's expected. So we go and watch our old shows over and over again. I don't know what they are for you, but you can think about what that is. That those shows that you, or those books you like to read um, every couple of years, you know how the ending's going to turn out. You know what to expect. There's some comfort in that. Um, I remember it's many, many years ago now, and I'm not advocating the movie, though it's brilliant. Uh, my, my friend invited me to go see the movies down here at Coleroy. I think it was 1990 or 1991. Not hard to find out because the year that Silence of the Lambs was um, released. Um, many of you, uh, I hope, I will, I'm sure many of you have seen a movie. It's, um, it's uh, I think it won some awards at the time. But I had no knowledge of what it was about or even the genre. <laughs> yeah. Nightmares for weeks. And I, I cope with, I cope with, um, most kind of genres, but I'm not, I don't love horror in general. I don't, I don't mind sort of soft horror kind of things, like um, stranger things. But I don't really love um, serial killer. I like crime, but just serial killers just, and some, for those who haven't seen it, I'm not giving it away really. It's, it's Silence of the Lambs is a, a, a thriller about a serial killer. And, and, and not being prepared for that, going in thinking it was a Friday night, going out with mates, and we're just going to enjoy an action movie or something, which is normal. Just, just stunned, and it, it, it probably shook me more than it really should have. But partly because I wasn't prepared, I didn't have the right expectations going in. That this was something I had to engage in at a different level. It wasn't going to be light-hearted. It was going to recognise the real evil and suffering in the world that is possible. It wasn't fanciful. I mean, maybe a little, but but these these kind of troubles and these kinds of this kind of evil exists. Expectations are powerful. Sometimes they're comforting, uh, sometimes they're not, and sometimes they're even problematic when we don't have the right expectation. We often have different expectations from those around us. You can think about your friends, how often you might communicate, the things you want to do, where you want to go, um, your, your relatives, your parents, your spouse, your, your siblings, our family events are going to happen. Our expectations can, can create a lot of conflict with one another because we have a different worldview, a different desire to see something happen uh, in a different way. And if they're not clearly expressed and understood, that, that creates problems, whether it's in our friends, our family, at our workplace, uh, with our uh, closest friends, with our spouses. Understanding each other's expectations is incredibly important. But perhaps, and this is not hard, is it? Perhaps it's not hard to see that the most important area to have our expectations clear is with our relationship with God. <coughs> the book of Job is going to explore Job's expectations, Job's friends' expectations. And it's going to leave us examining our own expectations of our life with Jesus, what it means to be a faithful person, what it means to follow God wholeheartedly. It's going to shape those expectations. It's going to raise some questions for us about why we're following Jesus. And that's the one question I want us to start and finish with today. And that is the question of why you follow Jesus. Let's jump into the book of Job. We're going to read through um, the first two chapters. We'll come back and think about Proverbs as we do. 
Uh, but we're going to read through the first two chapters, not all at once. I'm going to stop after each scene, and there's six scenes. Uh, and after each scene, I'll make some comments, and then we'll we'll um, have some discussion. I'll have some discussion after that about how this all fits together. But but it's set in six scenes, so there's an introduction that will introduce some key characters, and then well, Job in particular, and then we're going to get a vision of heaven and a conversation happening up there. And it's going to oscillate between heaven and earth in a couple of scenes, and then it's going to conclude for us. So join with me um, as we look at Job chapter 1. And it's the scene, opening scene, introducing us to Job and his family. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So we're introduced to Job here in chapter 1. Uh, we have themes of blessing and cursing and fearing God, which is very common for wisdom literature. We don't know much about this man, Job. We're going to find a little bit about him, out about him, but his context is obscured. He's from the east, from the land of Uz. He's not an Israelite. In fact, this whole book is set uh, beyond the boundaries of Israel, beyond the boundaries of people who would have God's word before them to wrestle with the ideas that the book is going to put forward. So it's picturing a person outside of Israel who knows God in a distant land, and he's very, very blessed. Uh, he has seven sons and three daughters, only to be mirrored by 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. So the, the, the parallel there is clear. You have sevens and threes uh, happening all the way through later on in the book as well. He has a large number of servants and he's the greatest man in the East. God is, this is being highlighted not just to show how wealthy he is, but to show how much God has blessed him because he is a righteous person, blameless. What does it say? He's blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. It's not very common in uh, Hebrew narrative descriptions to have these declarations that give you a very clear picture of the moral quality of a person. You sort of have to get into the story and just investigate it and figure it out. But right at the front, we're being told, here's a person who's upright and blameless. He fears God and shuns evil. This is a godly person. He's, a, he's an exemplary person. That he's really wealthy seems to indicate that God has blessed him. And this is the re reflected in the reading of Proverbs. For the, for the Israelite readers of this text, that makes sense in the Old Testament, that if you're faithful to God, part of that experience will be material blessing and enjoyment of the created order that's around you. I'd like to think more about that in the future. But right now, right now, Job is portrayed as honourable, godly and blessed. He's even so, so, so godly that he's concerned about his children's righteousness and he makes sacrifices for them, just in case 
on the off chance that they've cursed God. That's Job. C2. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread out throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. <coughs> The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. That's the end of scene two. In heaven, we have the heavenly court, we have the angels or the sons of God present, and we have Satan, interestingly, strangely, among them. As you work through the book of Job, some people uh, suggest that this is a, a parable. It's a story it's told, to, intended to tell a theological truth. Because we don't have historical details around, about Job, this is character from Uz, we don't really know where that is, it's outside of Israel. We have, Satan, we have a picture of the heavenly court where Satan appears with God, and people aren't always comfortable with that idea that Satan could be in God's court having a conversation. So I'll just spend a moment just thinking about whether this story happened. The short answer is I'm not sure. I think so. I'm happy for it to have happened. Because even if it didn't happen, which I'm open to as well, even if it didn't happen exactly as it's portrayed, it's portraying something true about God and how he works in the world, how he relates to his creatures, both angels and humanity. So even if it didn't happen... It's saying, this is how you should understand who God is. This is how you should understand how he works in the world. This is what you should expect from a relationship with him. Now, I, I probably, if I had to, fall on the side of it, it happened. I don't see any reason for it not to. Stranger things happen in the Bible than God talking to his angels. Um, but there are some worrying things here about what's about to happen, about God's activity with Satan and conversations that allow God's people now to be oppressed and to suffer the hands of Satan. So you can understand why people aren't overly comfortable with this being real. But I don't think, as I said, that gets us out of the problem. It's still being portrayed as a, a true picture of how God relates to the world. So, uh, we see here, um, at the end of scene two, the question is, will Job curse God and die? Will Job respond to this suffering by turning his back on God and becoming unfaithful? We've seen that word twice now already. Job's afraid his sons and daughters will curse God, and now Satan thinks that Job will. Let's have a look at what happens to Job and then his response, scene 3, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing 
and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Well, it's clearly a supernatural event. Uh, even the... Um, the people who are recounting the events, fire from heaven came down and God has done this uh, in one of the instances. But clearly the, the compounding of all of his property that, and, and possessions and his family that he had in, chapter, in the first scene, they've all been stripped away. Everything that he loves is lost. <coughs> and yet Job's initial response is to lament and more, to shave his head, to prostrate himself, and to cry out to God. Interestingly, the, the, the narrator will conclude this, this first chapter saying something similar about God's, of Job's character. Again, it's unusual to do this, and they're doing it again. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. But for Job, <clears throat> the story's not over. We're back in heaven, chapter 2, on a different day. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming back throughout the earth and going back and forth, isn't it? It's not really a, not much of a description, is it? Uh, I don't know if Satan's being a little coy. I mean, God certainly doesn't need to know where Satan is or where he's been. He's just initiating a conversation, but Satan's not giving a whole lot back. And the Lord says again, same thing he said in the first scene, in scene number two. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, even though you incited him me against him, to ruin him without any reason. Really important verse for our discussion in a moment. He still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him without any reason. Have you considered Job? He's still the man I said he was, in the midst of his deep suffering and loss. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, 
It is in your hands that you must spare his life. If it wasn't disconcerting the first time, it's, it's a little more disconcerting now that God's initiated twice and pointed Job out. Why on earth would he point Job out to Satan on two occasions? He clearly delights in Job. This, this is a man who, is, who fears God and has been richly blessed, but he's, he knows Job's heart is pure. It doesn't mean that he's sinless and he will never sin. He's, he's human. But wisdom literature casts these characters in, in, in absolutes. So that you have the upright and the wicked, the righteous and the wicked. And so here Job, he's not, he's not saying that he's perfect or never sinned. He offered sacrifices for his sins, as we've seen, and for the sins of his family. But his heart is oriented toward God and he desires to serve him. In the midst of his sin and in the midst of his brokenness, he, he responds appropriately to God. So it's not saying he's blameless, but it's saying he's upright and God-fearing and he stands out amongst the, the other people in God's kingdom. Enough for him to point the finger at him and highlight him to say and Satan basically says, well, you've taken everything, but actually touch the man himself, physically, bodily, make him suffer, and see what happens. Next scene, verse 7. Back on earth in the land of woods, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his foot to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among them. The ashes. Some of you could probably resonate with at least that scene, whether you had you know, horrible bodily pain um, from, your head of, from your head to your toes. I've, I've experienced that on a couple of occasions. Uh, or I've had friends who've had chicken pox as adults and relatives who's been inside and all over them and they just want to pass out from the pain. It's so horrific. Here, Job's scraping himself with pottery. You can't believe it. He's making it worse. Not only has everything been stripped away, He's now in physical agony. And we meet his wife for the first time. And she says to him in verse 9, Are you still holding out onto your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not see in what he said. We're not, we're not sure entirely what the wife's motivation here is, but it, it's like mercy. It seems like mercy. You're suffering so badly. Just finish it. Finish it. Clearly something's not right here and God's judging you. Just finish it off. That's what's implied there. But it seems it could, it could be merciful. It could be understood that way. And in the final scene, when Job's three, verse 11, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar, the, the Namathanite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their, on their heads. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great the suffering was. The friends are initially here doing a pretty good job of being friends. As you'll hear in the next couple of weeks, uh, 
they, they probably should have just stuck with the initial strategy and just went out. So. <laughs> just sitting with Job in his pain for seven days, just just inhabiting that that space with him. The desire was good, right, to sympathise and to, to be with him in his trouble. And so we see that Job's, Job's left with that. He's left with friends. Will they, will they be able to comfort him or not? And that's the question for next week. But there's so many questions here that these opening chapters raise. So many other questions. What is Satan doing in heaven? And why does God allow this? Why does God initiate these conversations with him and then allow Satan to afflict someone like Job? How can Job say these things about God and, um, and, and respond in such a righteous way? Shall we not accept the good and the trouble from the Lord? Will Job, Job maintain his integrity? And really, the question is, why is this happening to him? It stands over everything. We're not going to answer all of those today, or even a couple of them, and some of them don't even get answered by the book itself, but I'll leave, you, leave it to the rest of the speakers to unpack that for you. But I want us to think about, um, as, as we consider the book and think about our expectations of following God, think about what it means to follow Jesus, I, I, want, I want us to consider what we learn about suffering and then think about our expectations of God. So there's two things. There's two things initially that we learn learn about suffering. Suffering and loss and pain and grief. And that firstly, that suffering is not a mark of sin. (coughs) Suffering is not a mark of sin. Now this this seems to fly in the face a little bit in in terms of Proverbs, that the righteous... Uh, receive blessing and, and possessions and wealth and, and their life is at ease with God. And for the wicked there is judgment and destruction and being wiped from the land. And those things are generally true. Proverbs speaks in generalities, not in absolutes. It doesn't anticipate every situation or circumstance. And so I think what the book of Job is, is that it's addressing a wrong understanding, a false understanding of wisdom literature, a false understanding of Proverbs that say, as long as I do what is right before God, my life will be easy and I won't have to suffer. It's not what the Proverbs are saying either. A selective reading of Proverbs could make us think that. And here, Job, the book of Job is addressing this core belief about suffering. And it's saying that suffering is not a mark of sin. I mean, we couldn't be more clear about that, right? Four times in this narrative, actually more than five times. The narrator says it three times that give you uh, an indication of Job's quality and his character. And God speaks it out to Satan twice. Have you considered Job? He's still upright and blameless. There's nothing in the story that suggests Job deserves this because of his sin. He suffered the most horrific loss the things he loved most, and his physical health. And it was not because he sinned. It's also not because he had a lack of faith. We've already seen that, right? That he worships God in the face of his sin. 
He will not curse God even when it's all taken away and even at the advice of his wife and others. Even when he's lost everything. His faith in God is sure. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And God himself saying he still maintains his integrity even though you incited me against it without reason. There was no cause for this. I just want to stop for a moment here and, and just reflect on that. Because unfortunately I think many of us have seen or experienced what it's like when this isn't properly understood. When people think that their own suffering is because of their sin. When people are told that their continued suffering is due to a lack of faith. Which is what you're going to see his friends say all the way through the book. But right here at the beginning, we know for sure that his suffering and his loss is not because of sin. And it's not be, it couldn't be solved just by having more faith. This is unfortunately really harmful, isn't it? People who are already wondering about God's purposes in their life and why they're having to go through the things that they and their loved ones are going through, only to be told that they could avoid it. It was up to them. They could avoid it if they had more faith. They could have, they could have avoided it if they weren't so simple. Even if it's not that explicit, it's certainly implied, and I know many people have had that experience. There's not a straight line between our sin and our suffering. I'm not saying that we don't suffer because of our own sin. We can. We can bring about all kinds of unwise behavior. All kinds of unwise behavior can have all kinds of effects and have its own judgment in many ways. But our suffering is not, cannot be seen. All suffering cannot be seen as a product of our sin. And the second thing here is that suffering does not mean God has lost control. Suffering does not mean that God has lost control. As uncomfortable as this story is, God could not be in more control. He's setting the limits and the boundaries of everything that is happening to Job. The most powerful other force in the universe here portrayed as Satan, the adversary, this is the meaning of his name, but we'll know him as Satan and the deceiver and the serpent in Revelation. He has he been granted incredible power, but it is bounded, isn't it? It is all at God's request. Job himself recognising that God brings and God takes. God gives good gifts. God can take them. Nothing in, 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 God, in Job's world is outside of God's control. In fact, Job 
Job is convinced of this, but Job doesn't have those scenes before him. He doesn't know what's happening up in heaven between God and Satan, that all of this is happening at, God, at God's command and control. We do. We're reading this, and the, the readers of Job do, but Job, the man, he doesn't have the privilege of those heavenly scenes before him and having this conversation. In fact, I'll give away the end of the book. When, when Job demands a, a, an audience with God to explain all this, Job never finds out that this was what it this was what it was all about. This is how it started. There's a different answer given. But he never finds this out. But we know that he's right, that Job was right, that God was in control, and it wasn't about his sin. I want to highlight that because while suffering does not mean God has lost control, it doesn't always mean that we know why it's happening. Doesn't mean, doesn't always mean that we'll know why it's happening. Knowing that God is in control is deeply comforting. But in the midst of deep suffering and pain, being told that there's a reason for it isn't always helpful. Being told that God is here and understands and knows and cares is in control, yes. But that there's a, there's a reason for it, I found that particularly unhelpful. I'm not to say that I've suffered as much as many others, but I've had difficult periods in my life. Some of you here have uh, walked through some of those. It did not help. It did not help in the moment to think, oh, there's a reason for this. Well, that's great. I don't even think 10, 15 years on, I know, I know the reason for that. Job never gets the reason from start to finish. He gets a different vision, he gets a different answer, but he is not given the insight into God's wisdom and to God's purposes. He just has to trust. So while there certainly is a reason, <laughs> it's not always helpful. Advice. We don't always know what that is. We might not, not this side of glory. So, sin is not a mark of suffering. Sorry, suffering is not a mark of sin. And suffering doesn't mean God has lost control. I want us to think a little bit about what we can expect as followers of Jesus before we finish up today. Because if you if you expect as a, as a follower of Jesus that your life will be easier, that your life will have less problems, less suffering, less conflict, then I'm afraid for how that will play out for you. If that's what we expect of God, we are setting ourselves up for deep disappointment and anger. Job's already alerting us to the fact that we have a transient life that is full of God's good gifts, but they don't last. In God's wisdom and in his goodness, 
He has gifted Job and, and, and us and others with a life that is full of riches. But we see also in Job that it is a broken world with conflict and trouble and evil. And so as people, not just as followers of Jesus, but just as people, we inhabit a world that is broken, full of evil and conflict and suffering. As God's people, we now expect more suffering because we align ourselves with Jesus in this story. And Jesus says that the world did not love him, the world did not know him, and if you follow me, the world will hate you like it hates me. So not only are we inhabiting a beautiful but broken world as people, as followers of Jesus, we are walking a path that will end in more suffering. More blessing, more hope, more glory because of what Jesus has done, the new life we have and the spirit and the presence of God with us. But it is a path of suffering. Let me turn to First Peter. Peter written to God's people millennia later. Christians, followers of Jesus spread out throughout, throughout um, Asia Minor, uh, Southern Europe and Middle East. And they're, they're struggling under Roman rule. They're struggling under oppressive leadership. And he says this to them. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. And continue to do good. If following Jesus doesn't remove us from a broken world, a universal experience of conflict and loss, of deterioration and decay, if as a follower of Jesus we're not removed from the world around us, And we now enter a path, a path with Jesus that leads in another direction, a direction full of pain, oppression, sacrifice. There is, there is beauty and gift in that pathway. But I want us to ask the question we began with. And it's the question we'll finish, we finish with now. <coughs> Why are you following Jesus? I want you to reflect on this that this week before you um, continue with your job, Joe. 
while you hold. Father, thank you for your word which brings us brings us hope and allows us to wrestle with the realities of life in a broken world. We pray that as we engage with the book of Job in the next few weeks, we might consider more about, we might consider what our expectations of our life of faith are. You might give us a vision of who you are and what you have in store for us. That we might be faithful followers of your son. Praise his name.